Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. I am one of your two, I was going to say magnanimous, but I almost said malevolent hosts. Either works. That, that works as well, too. Malevolent, I think, works. One of your two malevolent hosts um, with with uh, uh, John Turney, my brother, as always, uh, all the way from California. Say, what up, John? What up, John? All right. And uh, we are here on this podcast that we have lovingly called This Is Not Church um, because <laughs> it ain't church. Uh, we're just hanging out, having some coffee, doing a little talking, no big whoop. <laughs> I'll give you a topic. Wait, the penis is nor a nut. What's church if not everything you just said? Oh well, <laughs> see now you've gotten into the to the conundrum that is the title of this podcast. Ruh, see, roll. right, right, right. <laughs> uh, the, the the really amazing individual that you just heard piping in is our guest for the day, for the morning, for the hour, for however long she decides to uh, tolerate our presence. Um, this is Amy. Courts, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her, and then she's going to tell you a whole lot more about herself because uh, I, I'm just going to give you the nuts and bolts real quick. So here we go. So Amy Courts is a, a candidate for ordination and student at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, currently completing her fourth and final year of study as a pastoral intern in the Twin Cities, St. Paul, right? Prior to entering seminary, she was a recording artist who toured with artists. Artists is holy shnikes, John. So you just said this is the reason that I read these, just because yeah. I'm better at you. Your, do them better. Yeah, I just said she 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 was she toured with artists <laughs> like uh, like Jennifer Knapp and Derek Webb, and then a, she was a worship leader at a Twin Cities mega church. Somewhere in there, she lost God, then faith, and then pieced them back together as part of a neighborhood Lutheran church where she became an aspiring abolitionist in movement for black lives. She's been married to Paul for nearly 16 years, and they have sons named Matt and Eli. And I believe that's it. She's also, oh, I was supposed to say, and queer by. Queer by. <laughs> okay, so queer by. Which we, we were afraid would come off like I was saying, and see you later, we're done talking now. Okay, queer <laughs> I think I'm going to start saying queer by to everybody because that is so much better than goodbye. I like it better, yeah. you know. Hey, it's Queer been by. really good talking to you. Queer bye. Queer bye. Okay, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, man, we're off yeah. to a great start, man. So we're so glad that you're here, Amy. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> oh my goodness, man. So if you don't mind, and well, hell, even if you do mind, um, if you don't mind, though. Um, like, 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 like John explained earlier, we just kind of like to get an idea of where kind of people are on their faith journey, which even as I say it, I know it's becoming to sound, it's starting to sound a little cliche, What your faith journey, but it's curious, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's interesting to find out kind of where people are on that path or that trajectory. So if you don't mind, we'd like to hear about it. Okay. So that's a loaded question and we could take a For whole sure. entire week on that. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> long story <laughs> short is I don't know. So I am a candidate for ordination in the ELCA church, which is a hot mess. Not just my candidacy, but like the ELCA. Right, right. As every denomination is. Um, we have our own disasters that our leaders are not attending to. And 
I'm in seminary, getting my second degree in theology. And I am the youngest of four girls born to a pastor who came from a family of pastors. And I'm queer and bisexual. And I am supposed to, therefore, be none of these things. So um, I was supposed to have a bunch of kids and be Mm -hmm. a good wife and a mom. And that was stopped short when my son was born, I have a stepson who is 24 mm. and he's amazing. He lives in Utah and works with the unhoused population there. Wow. You should actually talk to him because he knows a lot more about God than I do just from them. Um, That'd be great. Right. Uh, but then I had my son, Eli, our youngest son, 10 years ago, almost 11. And I almost died. Oh, no, I make that wow. sound like a party. It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> it's just, okay, so I tell people that and they're like, oh. And yeah, it's sad and it's <laughs> terrible and it was totally preventable um, and all of that stuff. But uh, it is what it is. And that yeah. was like the second the second bump on the, okay, so now, you know when you're sledding down an awesome sled hill? Okay, mm-hmm, you're yeah. going. You get that first. Yeah, you get the first bump, right? And then you right, keep right. going. And then you get the second bump and then eventually mm. you hit the third one and it just, you just fly and you might end up with broken bones. So right. the first bump was when I met my husband in Nashville when I was, I had just moved down there to be an artist and he was a recovering Lutheran agnostic and he and I had all these theological discussions and he was just like, that's interesting and dumb. And I had just graduated with like my degree in theology and I was like, no, hold up. I know everything. Right, right. And I am going to single-handedly save you from hell. And also you're very good at sex. <laughs> Which was a problem. That was a problem. So, okay, so that was the first thing is that we were together and we were together in the biblical sense. Mm-mm. And all of everybody, all of the people that I grew up with were like, no, Amy, you are going to have to break up with him or get married immediately because this is a sin and you're going to go to hell and your relationship cannot survive this. And so that was, that was on one hand. And then on the other hand, I was like, this is the healthiest relationship I've ever been in. Yeah. I, I am so supported and loved and cared for and attended to. And so you're wrong. Yeah. That's interesting. So that was like the first little like up that hill or bump, whatever. And then my son died, my son dying. My son did not not die. My son being born and me almost dying was like a bigger bloop on that hill, which came seven years, eight years, something like that after. Uh, What? I don't math. You do the math. That long later, <laughs> this is why I'm a theologian. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Mathematics were never my thing. So anyway, um, yeah, him being born and all of that happening. I had people, including family members, being like, well, all the all the terrible things that people say to you, like, God will make good things come from this or it happened for a reason or the worst was my sister telling me, one of my sisters telling me that um, I was lamenting how the fucking Duggars have like a bajillion kids who we all know are shit now. Right. right? (laughs) And we all knew then too, 
But like now we have but now we know. Now we have the data. Right? Yeah. Now we yeah. know. We, know. we, we always know. knew, but now and everybody yeah. knows. <laughs> but she she had said, I was lamenting that they got so many kids and I only got the one. And she was like, No, Amy, God is I don't know, something like God does all of the things and everything that God does is good. And so if God caused this, then God is good, and you being angry at God is sin. That's a a whole load of bullshit right there. And this is the best part is it was on like at the end of Thanksgiving week, 10 or 11 years ago. And they were on their way out the door. She and her seven kids and her husband to leave after the week. And I was just like, get the fuck out of my house. If it hadn't, if she had said it like two days before, I would have been loading their car for them just because it was so violent. But that was one of those times where I started to realize that the things that people say to us when we're in the middle of grief and when we're experiencing like catastrophic pain, the stuff that people say to us is stuff that they need to hear to get through it or mm-hmm. that they needed when they were going through something. It's not for you. It's for them. Oh yeah. 100%. So I was like, okay, she's been through some things too. And that's what she needed to believe was that God caused it and God is making all like everything God does is good so therefore it must be good that's what she had to do to survive some shit so that was that and then oh that in the middle of that I started leading worship at a mega church over here and it was great it was awesome until they started doing the like the smoke and the lights and the big rock show kind of stuff and I I was like, I, I am a performer. I am a professional musician who's been on tour. And I know that what you're asking me to do is put on a rock show. And I'm not comfortable with that in church. And like they started, the, the language started shifting from like church and worship to audience. So you were, you were leading worship at a mega church amidst the smoke and the lasers and all of the trappings of megachurch rock stardom, which um, I have participated Uh in on a very small scale, but um, I understand. Can I ask you this? Was there, as a performer, so divorce yourself from the uneasiness of this is church and it feels weird, but was there still as a performer, like this kind of rocks? Oh, I love it. Like I kind of dig this as, okay, (laughs) that that was my problem is I I felt the seduction of the stage, even as I hated it. But I had to admit that there was still an allure there of like, the adulation is nice. Oh. Like you, oh, yeah. anyone, any one of us would be lying if we didn't say that we didn't love that. No, I, you know, I led worship in a, in a very, in a very small church, but wasn't, I mean, wasn't the moments where someone came up to you and it's like, I mean, you just brought me to tears. I mean, that song that you guys did just, just slayed me. Well, cause it was in minor key. And so therefore <laughs> the feelings, <laughs> the feelings flowed. It was in, it was in a, a six, eight minor key with the six, eight time signature. And, uh, <laughs> At what point did we all realize that we were doing this like really, really sick manipulation, right? Oh, yeah. There's a very specific specific song order, right? There's got to, you you, got to get their attention. You got to get them going. You got to get them clapping. You got to get them going. And then you bring them down. And then you bring it down, right? And then somewhere in one of those songs, and Nat knows this because I've, I've heard Nat do it. I've done it. And we're really good at this, right? You have that moment where you, you just bring the music down, right? Oh, you bring and it all like, the way down. I, and then people... Right. And it's like, I just, I just want to talk to you right now. I just want to talk to you all yeah. right now about something. 
Lord. That the Lord told me to speak to you. Right. That's and right. It's gushing, an exhortation, this gushing John. moment of love and, and acceptance and bleh. Or depending on where you are, hellfire and damnation. <laughs> well, sure. Yes, yes. 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 But still yes. in so, that, so, God loves you. Yeah. So, when you, so when you're in the yeah. midst of that, though, what was it that kind of, you know, was it that self-awareness that you're like, this doesn't, like, this just doesn't feel right, even though my human, yeah. you know, part of me likes this the ego stroke yeah. and all this stuff that comes along with it. But, but the other side of me that realizes this is, this is what, I mean, was there just a breaking point for you? Like, I just can't do this anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was. And it was, um, okay. So y'all know the Enneagram or no, is that, is that, a we, we literally just had, a. An interview with uh, Ellen Compton. I'm not sure if you know who she is, but she's amazing. Um, so we just talked to her for about an hour and a half about the Enneagram. What are y'all? And uh, I don't, uh, I don't know because oh. I still haven't taken the test. But that that was our first, my first real introduction to it was like, okay, now now I'm fascinated. Now I know. But I bet we're similar, right? I think I, I would. <laughs> well, I would. The way but, you're talking, I'm like, ooh, I bet they're fours, like me. Mm. I'm a four, which is like all the feels. Hi. My emotions are the mess, right. right? Okay, and I love them so much. I love my emotions. I love the big feels. Anyway, and there is only ever going to be one of me and no one's ever going to understand me. Oh, woe is me. I mean, I'm dramatizing it, but that's also a very poor thing to do. But it's true. <laughs> like, <For sure. laughs> this is, I am embodying my full foreignness right now, which any Enneagram teacher will tell you, don't do that. Move to your better self. Anyway. Um, right. So, Yeah. I had spent some time in this, in this, uh, worship context where I was definitely enjoying being told being given all the, all the lauds, whatever. You're great. Love your voice. That song was amazing. I loved performing them. I loved singing them. Like I got the feels too. Like I love it so much. And I, I get so much life and so much energy and joy from like the dynamics of a song, of writing a song or playing a song or, or performing a song that is really big dynamically because I feel like it can, it can span the whole scope of human emotion and, and give us a sense of like a sense of wholeness in a moment that is kind of hard to, to find in other places, in ways that music does that as succinctly and quickly as it does. But yeah, I was doing that. And okay, so this was back in like the summer of 2016. And this, the war in Syria was raging, right? The civil war and Aleppo was constantly right. being bombed. There were literal babies washing up on the shoreline of Mediterranean com- countries. And all of this was like weighing heavily on me. And one day, like a, one night I was up late and Omran, I don't, I don't know if you remember the boy Omran, who is like a five-year-old boy who was pulled from the rubble of a bombed out building and set inside an ambulance. And he just sat there inside the ambulance, dusty and bloody and shell-shocked, literally. And then he brought his hand up to his nose and looked at it and it was bloody And then he put it down and just looked straight at the camera and I wept. And I went to bed that night weeping and praying because my son at the same time was five years old. And I was just going, that could be my kid if I was in another country and, and holy shit. Right. Right. 
And then as I'm praying, as I'm going, God, 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 it struck me in like a lightning moment. If God is listening to me, but not to Omran's mother, and if God is going to be more attentive to my prayers from my safe bed in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but is not going to listen to Omran's mother, what the fuck, that God is cruel, and that's dumb. Mm -hmm. And then in that same moment, I was like, oh, there is no God. And the whole, I, I can't describe it in any other way, but to say that it was like the earth fell out from under me and I was in space without gravity, without oxygen. I was just in space. (laughs) And I went the next day to church to lead worship (laughs) or no, maybe it was like the following week. So there was a week between there. Maybe it might've been the next day. I might have the timeline wrong, but it was within a week that I was leading worship again and I couldn't not go because it was, it must've been the next day because there was whole, I was in the middle of it and I went the next day and I was like, well, this sucks because <laughs> God yeah. isn't real. Uh, this is all a lie and I have to sing about it. And mm, I did goodness. it because I was like, I, ha- I have to do it. I have to do it. I need the paycheck and I have to do it. And I was my team's leader. Right. So I did it. And that day after church, somebody came up to me and said, Amy, that was so beautiful. It was and so powerful. You really brought the Holy Spirit. And mm. it took everything in me not to be like, actually, the Holy Spirit is a lie. This is all bullshit. I gave you the feels because I am a performer and this is what I do. So that was kind of like the end, the beginning of the end. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, well, this is terrible. And it wasn't, it was not too long before all of that, that my husband had been, he's also a musician. This is how we met, was playing music and making music. And he had been cut from my worship team because he was too old and not cool enough. A few months Oh prior, my God. <laughs> right. Even though he's like, fucking amazing. Um, he had been cut from the worship team and he left and I had just said, you know, I'm going to do this until I can't do it anymore. If that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. until I just can't, cause 100%. I can't do something that is not authentic to me. That's also me being a four. Right. Um, and that was, it was probably two weeks after that, that day in church where I was like, ah, you know, I can't. I can't anymore. Can't do it. So I left. And by that point, it had been like a few months since Paul had left. And he was raised Lutheran, uh, LCMS, which is like the evangelical version of Lutheran church. And he was like, I'm ready to go back to church again. And I was like, cool. I just left mine. And I don't care about God. I don't think, I, I mean... I don't care about God the same way that I don't care about unicorns. And so I was just like, I want to be with you because you and Eli are my anchor. This is where I am. And he was like, I think I'm ready to go back to church, but let's try one that's closer to home. We live in North Minneapolis where lots and lots of people have been brutalized and killed by police. Um, It's a predominantly black neighborhood. So much violence, so much blight. Uh, 
last summer we had the National Guard rolling down our street like it was no big deal. And I had friends calling me from out of state going, Amy, what's happening? It's like you're in occupied territory. And I'm like, yeah, I have been for a while, you know, and going to that mega church 45 minutes across town, they didn't get that. They weren't in that. And so I was like, okay, I'll go to church with you, babe, but we need to go somewhere that is here. And so we started going to church just a couple miles from home in ELCA. And that's where I learned to be an abolitionist. And that's where I learned that, yeah, like everything is political. I was, the church that we had been at for a while was very like third way. We're above it all. Vote if you must, but God isn't political. And being over here, I'm like, I don't know how you can look at a black body or a queer body or a a Native American body in Minneapolis and say that it's not political. So we went there and that's, I was brought back to life there in some really significant ways. And then I got bored being, because I had been a stay-at-home mom for five years and then Eli went to school and I had this whole year where he was, I was a stay-at-home mom and no one was at home but me. And I was like, this is stupid. So I talked to my pastor at that church and I was like, so you need an admin assistant? I can do that. And so they hired me to be the admin. And that year I would get in these like deeply theological conversations with all of my coworkers. We also had a nonprofit at that church that was all about um, housing, employment and youth development. And they actually did that stuff right? Like for real, for real. And there were a lot of people on staff that were not religious, that were differently religious, whatever. It was, it was very diverse in that way. And so there were a lot of conversations like in the church building about lots of different things. And at one point, our pastoral intern said to me, Amy, you should go to seminary. And I was like, I don't believe in God. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he's like, that's why you should go to seminary. (laughs) And my pastor was like, yeah, the church needs people who don't believe in God because the church doesn't believe in people who don't believe in God. Mm. And so... Well, that's profound. Yeah. Right? Wow. So then (laughs) I told the seminary that I didn't believe in God and they're like, great, can we offer you a full ride scholarship? (laughs) (laughs) That's all I have to say. <laughs> right. So, you're listening, uh, I don't believe in God. Can I come to your seminary? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's like, this is what, where am I? But they wanted me. And that was another one of those times where I was like, well, I will go and I will do this until I can't anymore. Yeah. And here I am. <laughs> That's a- Still going. Wow. So yeah, and somewhere along in there, like, I think I discovered, I still don't believe there's a God. I think it's incredibly unlikely. Mm. Uh, like, Like reason, logic, I don't, I think it's unlikely. But I am a deeply dark nihilist when I don't have that anchor. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay, if belief in God or whatever anybody wants to call it, that's an anchor for me. That like grounds me and keeps me sane. And so I believe. But see that, that is the most honest statement of belief I've ever heard. (laughs) It is. Cause it's like, I believe, I think, 
Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of uh, our friend Michelle Collins when we, she was one of our about our second guest or so we we had on, and uh, you know she her her statement to me was, "I believe in God sometimes, yeah, and sometimes I don't, and sometimes I, and some days I do, and sometimes some days it seems like the most absurd thing in the world to me, yeah, and some days it's it seems like the most sane thing in the world, but it, but she was mm-hmm. I think she would admit or agree with you that it it's, it's, it's somehow grounded her." Yep. You know, even if it wasn't something that she was deeply, deeply held. Yeah. Um, it was a tether of sorts, yeah. you know, to something. And you know what? That's, you're, I was warned that if I went to seminary, I'd become an atheist. <laughs> um, I didn't think to become an atheist first. That's the right way. That might have, <laughs> that might have, that might have actually reversed yeah. the process. Now I went, oh my gosh, my, my, my youth pastor actually called it cemetery, right? Because that's where, <laughs> that's where faith goes to die. Because he was just so concerned I was going to go to seminary and, and, you know, get reasoned out of my faith. I'm like, well, if I can be reasoned out of it, then, then it wasn't very much to begin with, was it? That's such a weird thing for me to hear now, because I, now that I know that there's no reason to any of it, again, like very terribly unlikely, any of it. And there's certainly no proof. These are like, at best, what we have are like, some beautiful stories about people who were so moved by the leader of a movement that it changed their life and the rest of the trajectory of human history in unimaginable ways. That's what we can know for a fact. Right, but that's about it, right? Yeah. Whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, I don't know. I think we're all rising from the dead in a hundred different ways throughout our lifetime, so whatever. You know, and I've watched people rise from sleep and seclusion and what may as well be a, the dead by watching other people murdered. So yeah, right. in that way, I think we're all in a constant cycle of death and resurrection. Right. And I, I think, you know, Nat and I have had this conversation with other people. Um, if your important parts of this story are like we talked about with someone else who's like, with, with the story of Jonah, right? Is like, was he swallowed by a whale or a fish or whatever the hell it could have been? If that's your, if that's your important part of that story, I'm already bored. I already want to right. move on. And it kind of is the same for me with Jesus. It's like, if really, if, if all you want to sit around and talk about is, did he, what, was he from a virgin birth or not? Did he rise from the dead or not? Mm-hmm. You have so missed the fucking point. <laughs> the point is what this person told us we are supposed to do, Mm -hmm. what this person has told us, how we are supposed to treat one another. Mm -hmm. And we spend all our time sitting around debating Mm -hmm. on, you know, were the three days actual three days? Right. I mean, you know, what, what, did he really, did he, was he really crucified on this day? It's metaphorical, John. Right. Come on. We've talked about this. (laughs) It's all metaphor. But but we spend all this time talking about all this shit that just doesn't matter. And while we are talking about and debating this and talking and talking and talking, people are literally dying around us because of this faith. And we aren't doing anything to raise them up. Right. So we are so, you know, it's like we can go down the, I mean, it just so happens that you talk about this, you know, happening around t- 2016, right? When you're making this big change, we also know that other big change that happened in this country in 2016, yeah. right? Um, so we got to see the trajectory of this really bad plan, right? Unfold and fold in front of us for four years. We got to yeah. see the 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 
closeted bigots come out and tell us who they always have been. Well, because at that point they had a champion. Right, and we got to see them start saying the quiet part out loud into a microphone for all of their friends to hear and applaud and... Yeah, because all of a sudden, like, you know, 2016 was a pivotal year for me, too. Yeah. I remember very, very clearly the picture you're talking mm. about. Um, I remember posting something about it on Facebook, just heartbroken. Yeah. Um, it, it, still, it still wrecks me when I think about it. And of all the things I've shared on Facebook, it's the most shared thing. I think there was, you know, a couple thousand people who shared my picture and put it out there and talked about it. And at the end of the day, it's Facebook and, and it changed exactly nothing. Yeah. Um, oh, but... Yeah. But it was pivotal for me. I had I, when you, as soon as you brought that up, I, re, I remembered talking about that and talking about our our desensitization to violence and the fact that it, you know when you talk about the megachurch that you were at, how they weren't sensitized to the issues because they weren't part of the issue. You know, it just it 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 reminds me how much the church has got to get back into into the real world. Right. You know, because we've spent all these all these years and years and years creating these little hermetically sealed communities for ourselves where it's all just self-adulation, it's all masturbatory, it's all, you know, self-gratifying, whatever. Hey, I built this building. Here's ninety-nine percent of my budget that now goes to to me. And they and they and if they're really, really generous, they'll carve out a you know, a half a percentage point or so of 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 a little bit of that money that comes into put out into the community and but but it used to drive me nuts to watch the millions yeah. of dollars spent. Yeah, if it goes out into the community. Usually it'll go to somewhere in Africa because serving black people in Africa is more palatable than serving black people next door. And I'm not saying don't serve them, but I'm just saying like it's a mess. <laughs> no, but I'm I, I'm with you. We I had I had these arguments on a church where I was on staff and um, we had carved out certain percentages of whatever was coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1% was carved out for local. This was for what we called benevolence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 10% was going out to mission organizations that went to, you know, to Samaritan's Purse or something like that, or to some other, well, I was like, some other, you know, ghastly organization. But I'm like, 1% for your neighbor who can't pay their light bill. And once that fund is depleted... And what I'm sorry, and then they would have to, and and actually the the the, the more sickening part was the the hoops that we made them jump through to get it. Right. Listen, you actually need to come down here. Well, I don't have a car. Well, find a way to get here. Fill out this application. Bring me a copy of the bill you need paid. It was just this arduous, and you know what? And we were hoping. I'm telling you right now, this was by design that a certain that that a vast majority of people just wouldn't go to the trouble. Which is ironic because that's exactly what the government does to people, and that's why they go to the yeah. church instead. Right. Well, the, we're, we're the insurance companies of charities. Yep. Right. We're hoping that our first refusal will be enough to dissuade you from coming back for more, and then we will, you know, it was sickening. And then that the truly humiliated people, the people who are in like direst of need, will show up on our doorstep right. and perform their desperation. Right to our liking in such a way that it pulls on our heartstrings and then on our purse strings. And so we are still abusing them and using them and exploiting them for our own spiritual entertainment. Right. We are not helping people. Well, because when we do finally deign to provide that help, what do, them, what do we do then? Go, turn around, pat ourselves on the back, 
you know, puff our chests out a little bit. Look at that. Take pictures of them. Well, you know, take selfies with the, with the underprivileged and put them on Facebook. And it it is all just such self gratifying bullshit. Um, that it makes me, it makes me sad that I was ever part of it. Um, but it it isn't, I don't know. It's just that, that to me is, is symptomatic of the institution, you know, and it's symptomatic of any institution because they just become inhuman. Yeah. You know, they're incapable of acting in human ways because they're not human. That, I think that's true, yeah. Well, it's a, it, it's a sad, it, it's, whew. so talk to me more about the, the, the ELCA. Because uh-huh. I've, I've heard, so that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Is that right? Correct, yeah. Okay, so I have a very, very little understanding of the differentiation between ELCA and some other types of, of Lutheran denominations. Yeah, me too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, Um, I can tell you that like a big difference, and this is a difference that makes a really big difference to me, is that um, the ELCA hosts an open table, which just means that anyone from anywhere can come off the street and receive communion and receive a blessing. Um, And there are no litmus tests. There is no membership. There is no expectation of, like in the evangelical church where you say the sinner's prayer and all of that stuff. It's just, it's not my table. It is the Lord's table. And it is open to anyone who comes. And God is entirely capable. If God exists, then God is entirely capable of feeding people as they need to be fed. And I am Mm. here to put the bread and wine in their hand. And that's it. That's it. So we don't, we don't get to make up the guest list. No. Right. We don't get to decide who's, who's worthy of being served. I have never in my entire life understood the exclusion from the table. (laughs) You know, I've never understood that, you know, I mean, when I even look back at the, I tell my church all the time, cause I still pastor a small church, you know, and I tell yeah. them all the time we do commu- we serve communion every week. And, and, you know, and we talk about this a ton. Um, if Jesus can wash Judas's feet, if Jesus, if Jesus can feed Peter, who the hell am I to exclude anyone from my table? I mean, it's just silliness. Jesus fed Judas and then sent him on his way. Yeah. Now, with all these years removed from the evangelical church where everything was so closely guarded and gate-kept, right? Oh, absolutely, With years removed from that, now I look at it, as I look at so many other things, and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. And then I hear from people from my past who are like, Amy, I just had a war about this on Facebook on my own page. Um, Amy, you're leading people astray with this bad theology. And I'm like, Huh? Huh? <laughs> really? Like what? <laughs> and I like just yesterday <laughs> I preached the wedding at Cana and without getting into without giving the whole sermon again, let me just say like it is profoundly beautiful to me that Jesus decided that his first well, in John anyway, the first miracle that Jesus performed was to fill up water jars with wine so that a party would not be interrupted. And nobody except for a few people, like a handful of people, had any idea that anything happened. Right. No one knew. All, like at best, what anybody knew was that the party hosts had saved the best wine for last. And so they enjoyed that and thanked the hosts. But nobody knew that a miracle was performed. Nobody knew it was God. 
And yet every single one of them enjoyed it. Every single one of them benefited from this, from this miracle, this sign that was done purely for the enjoyment of the people who were there, regardless of whether or not they would ever recognize or say or confess that it was Jesus. And that's why I'm like, I look around and I don't care if you call God, God, or if you call it prayer or manifestation or the universe or love, I don't fucking care. Is it causing you to love bigger and experience more profound joy in the middle of a disaster? Um, and is it, is it empowering you to go out and be something meaningful in your community where your community is suffering? Then Rob Bell back in the day, not back in the day, back in my day when I was deconstructing, um, mm-hmm. I was listening to a liturgist podcast uh, and he had said something on there, or maybe it was his own podcast, I don't know, about how he thinks that the question of whether or not you believe in God or whether or not God exists, he thinks that's the least interesting question. The much oh, yeah, and I yeah, would agree. The much more interesting question is, what does belief in God make of you? Does it make you a better person? Then be a Christian. Does it make you a worse person? Then please don't. Don't be a Christian. If atheism yeah. makes you yeah. the best possible person that you can be in service to and in solidarity with your community, then believe in nothing. Well, yeah, because it, at the end of all of this, isn't it just asinine to think that we're going to get into like these ideas of God as the savior, or God is going to somehow save humanity, mm-hmm. right? So... In the end of all this, if you're, if you follow, yeah, exactly. If you follow this Christian faith, at some point you are converted, right? You, you, you convert to Christianity. You are saved. You ask Jesus into your heart, blah, 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 all that bullshit. And then every, all that bad shit that you did no longer matters. You're going to heaven. Right. Right. Even if it's a deathbed confession. Mm -hmm. But on the other end of this, you have, you have that atheist, that Muslim, that, uh, person who follows Hindu faith, Hinduism, or whatever, you know, just pick a faith and they are good people who are doing good work and saving people's mm-hmm. lives. But at the end of the day, they don't convert, they don't switch, they don't say the magic prayer. So they're going to that fiery lake while that person who had an assholery life his whole life and on his deathbed says, yeah, maybe Jesus is the way. And boom. Instantly, pearly gates, right? Or the asshole who became a Christian when he was 12 years old and remained an asshole for the rest of his life. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. In service yeah. of that God. Like you said, it's, it's, it's a lazy response. Utterly lazy. What the, the, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Buddha, the teachings of Muhammad, really, if you really want to be honest and you guys, and you guys that are, you know, if you're listening, let's say out you are because you wouldn't. But, <laughs> Uh, if you were no, really you to look at the teachings of Muhammad and you want to say that it's a violent religion and all it teaches is violence, uh, you need to turn Ugh. the camera around and on your own face and show me where Christianity hasn't also been just a religion of violence. Forever. On all the other people who don't fit into your mm-hmm. mold. It's so easy to point the finger at 
specifically Muslims, right? right? As just the most violent religion on the planet. I'm sorry, most of the terrorists, and I know I'm going to piss some people off here because they're going to go, what about 9-11? That's, that's going to be their, their one take out of all this, right? Of course. Uh, most of the terrorist acts in this country have been done by people who claim to be Christians. White men who, who claim to be most, Christians, yes. Right, white men, mm-hmm. white men who claim mm-hmm. to be Christians. And I'm sorry, historically, most of the terrorist acts, and I'm sorry, you're going to have to look at some of the stuff that we've done outside of this country, have also been done in the name of a Christian God. Well, I mean, that gets back to things too, is I think how inextricably tied white supremacy is to Christianity in the United States. Not necessarily to the rest in the rest of the world, though Western We're doing a really good job of, of, of making sure right, that happens. In too. the West yeah. for sure. And patriarchy, white supremacy, all all of it is tied up in a gate-kept hierarchical religious structure that says you have to say the sinner's prayer in order to get into heaven and you have to follow and believe what these white men with power tell you to believe. Otherwise, you will go to hell. And any disruption to or questioning of this earthly authority, which has been self-proclaimed and self-claimed, any question of that is questioning God, little g, himself, and you're going to go to hell. Um, there's, it's, it's still so hard to wrap my mind around now because I am, again, like, <laughs> back in 2010, I was on tour with Jennifer Knapp, and we were out in California, and I was listening to her and another person backstage talk about theology and about the vastness of God and how essentially everyone's in. If God is God and God is capable of making all things good, then God will make all things good and everyone's in. And I remember sitting there being like, oh my gosh. It, it did not. All of the circuits in my head were like firing, misfiring, and going. Ah, ah. Um, and now, these many years later, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems like one of the more tame things she's ever said. Well, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, Jennifer always. I I, I do like. We talk about Christian music um, and the Christian music industry, which is. I think wholesale corrupt and crap. Um, but there are bright shining people inside of that place. And Jennifer Knapp is one of those that for me that I always just respected her. And, um, she seems like a good person, um, and, and willing to go her own way and suffer the consequences of that. Um, cause she should be, you know, if if she was willing to toe the line Mm -hmm. and be a good little female Chris Tomlin, um, she'd be a superstar. And she was for a while, yeah. And she really was, yeah. Until So I have have the utmost respect for that, um, for people who are willing to go their own way and uh, who are willing to, you know, again, you know, knowing full well there will be consequences for that. They'll lose income and they'll lose, you know, some piece of their platform. Yeah. And, you know, so be it. That, that That's the price of being authentic, I guess, right. at times. But how was it being on tour with her? It must have been pretty cool, I think. It was... It... Yeah, that was an experience of a lifetime because, I mean, I moved to Nashville in 2003 
right after Jen disappeared, like just disappeared. And uh, that was a whole thing because she is the reason I started writing music. Mm. She, I was her, I was her biggest fan. She was my number one artist for ever and ever and ever growing up. Um, she was the soundtrack to a very sad youth. <laughs> I would say that. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh, no. And so I moved there and I was like, well, great. She's gone, you know? And then she came yeah, what's right, that, right? right. And then she came back and I remember, oh my gosh, one night I was about to play a show, a random show that a friend had asked me to, okay, back up. I went to Africa on a mission trip in like late <laughs> September, early October, 2009. And I came back from that trip from that 10 days and Jennifer Knapp was on Twitter and on MySpace, right? MySpace. <laughs> she was on Twitter and on MySpace and she was following me on Twitter and she was I was in her top friends on MySpace and I had all these messages. I did not have a phone with me in Africa. Okay. In Gulu, Uganda specifically, (laughs) um, didn't have any access to the, like to the American world other than like the occasional email to my husband. And I get back and she's following me on Twitter and she is, I'm in her top friends on MySpace and I'm like, Y'all are smoking, whatever. And <laughs> like three days later, a friend had a show and their opener backed out and they were like, can you do this like last minute? I was like, yeah, sure, fine. And Paul and I were at like Starbucks before that show, just talking about how, like he asked me randomly, like if you got the one thing in your life, that you wanted? Like, what would be the height of it, of success? You could die happy. And I was like, Jennifer Knapp would go back on tour. Derek Webb would go with her and I would go with them. I'd go on tour with Jennifer Knapp and Derek Webb. I literally said that. Okay. And then I go to this show that I'm playing and Paul and I are sitting there taking selfies on my flip phone. and jennifer knapp walks up to the table and she's like hi i'm jennifer knapp and i look up at her and i'm like i know who you are and i took two shots of tequila that night to get through my set (laughs) (laughs) there is no way and then it happened like we she you know she came to that show she enjoyed it she asked me to sing with her at her first show back in Nashville, which was like life-altering dream come true. And then she asked if I would go on tour with her and Derek, and it was going to be a big tour because it was going to be her coming out tour. Somewhere along those three months, we knew that the story was going to come out that she's gay. And so she was kind of preparing me for that. She's like, this is going to happen. And I'm like, okay, cool. Okay, cool. And even at that time, I was still like, I was not out yet. I wasn't out until 2018, 2017. But even then I still had this theology in my mind where I was like, well, the Bible probably says that being gay is a sin, but I know all of these queer people and they have fought harder for their faith 
than I've ever fought for mine. And I can't deny that. Like, I can't deny what I'm witnessing in front of me. It'd be like telling me to deny the resurrection when I watched it happen. So, yeah, I went on tour with her during that tour and it was brutal. We had a great time on the road. We had so much fun and it was beautiful and hilarious and full of joy. And it was also just brutal. Now, brutal in terms of the kinds of attacks Mm -hmm. that she endured, the kinds of, you know, bullshit and vitriol that people probably threw at her. Yeah. um, Brutal in that way. Did they come to, did they come and protest shows? Were there people there with picket signs and crap? There weren't any, there wasn't any of that. Um, But we had the entire show scheduled before we went out, of course, and before the story was set to release. And it was night and day, like we had sold out venues. I should say she and Derek sold out venues. I was along for the ride. Right. Nobody knew who the fuck I was. (laughs) But we had sold out a ton of venues. Like almost all of the shows were completely sold out. And the day the story came out, we had to switch. We were in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we had to switch from the main ballroom in the event venue that we were in that was sold out to like a backroom coffee house type of feel that was half full because half the people, more than half the people had asked for their money back. And she, this is a testament to Jen's integrity is that she gave every single person their penny, every single person their money back. And she did not hold it against them because she was like, I am not going to lie to you. I am not going to, I'm not going to bait and switch you. And have you thinking that you're coming to one show and then you end up coming to another show that you don't want to be at. And she took a massive hit for that on, in every possible way. And like personally, obviously it was never, it wasn't that bad for me. I saw myself as a support figure for her. Like, yeah, as a, sure. like Derek and I were kind of like the shields. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what the fuck ever, you know, like it doesn't right, hurt right. us in the same way. But the week that she came out, she came out, the story came out on a Sunday. And that Sunday night was in Tulsa and the show just fell apart. And then the following Sunday, we were in Denver, Colorado, which is where I was born and raised. All of my family was out there and my whole entire family had been planning for months since they knew that the shows were booked to be at that show. And all but one of my sisters backed out from coming to the show, even though it was at like a regular, like it was at the Bluebird Cafe or the Bluebird Theater in Denver. Not a Christian venue, not a church, no religion to it. All of them refused to come because they couldn't appear to be supporting a gay woman. And I was like, you could come and support me. (laughs) And one one of my sisters did. One of my sisters came to the show, watched me play and left while Derek was on stage so that she would not be there to watch Jennifer. Well, yeah, because then what would the people at her church say? Well, and that was the thing is that my dad is a pastor and he took very seriously this idea. I mean, this idea that Jesus came to not to bring peace, but a sword Mm -hmm. that pits mother against 
daughter and father and son right. and whatever. And he jail. wore it as a badge of honor. Like, look, this is where the rubber meets the road and where the sword meets the soul kind of thing. Oh, my God. And yeah. They have stood by that <laughs> to this day. See, that, that to me is the difference. You know, when you get away from the evangelical world, you know, you start to see things differently, right? Your your mm. perspective starts to shift. And I started going, listen, anything that would come between me and being a good human being, I, I reject it. Right. It's I reject so basic. It. Whatever, if, 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 even if it's God, whatever form of God that is, if, if, and I love what Rob Bell said. I'm a huge Rob Bell fan. I, I'll tell you, I, I went to see him in, uh, in San Antonio and Austin. I've seen him a few times, but um, I was disappointed that the uh, the protesters didn't come out in larger yeah. force. Um, I was really hoping to have a confrontation with a couple <laughs> of them. But that thing that he says about what you know, whatever you believe about God, um, the more the, the more important question is what is that? What does that cause you to do? Right? What does that belief in God um, compel you to do? Does it compel you to love bigger, love 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 more inclusively? Does it does it yeah, because at the end of the day, you know, it just doesn't, none of that other stuff matters anymore. But I, I was, I remember when she came out, I remember being staunchly um, involved in conservative evangelical Christianity. And I recall being appalled. Mm. Yeah, it was a mess. That she would have the audacity to continue to proclaim, you know, claim to be a Christian artist and to be yeah. gay. You know, and I was, and, you know, and, we all have things. I think we look back on our lives and we go, "Okay, I'm embarrassed oh. by that." You know, my entire um, Facebook. Okay, there's a <laughs> from six years ago and back. Yeah, it's 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 sad that it's not, in some cases it's not that long right, ago for yeah. me. It's like, oh my gosh, that was like I'm, these Facebook memories all suck. Right. I hate them so much because I'm like, ten years ago you said this. I was a dick. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I am okay. I I need to repent. Uh, for that, but it is hopeful though. See that that's when you were talking about patriarchy and we were talking about hierarchy, especially in that, that sort of pecking order, the church's, you know, the structure. The only thing that gives me any hope for any of this is that even within those sort of inherently corrupt systems, we get abolitionist movements. Even the, the, because you can't extinguish entirely the liberation uh, of the gospel. Um, and that's what I have to hold on to that there are, there are embers at least burning. Uh, we had Sean Deja on the, on the show a while back. And if you haven't listened to that episode, uh, if you don't know who she is, she's amazing. Um, I think you would love, love, love her. Um, but that's what she's at. She's like, the gospel is liberation theology. I mean, it's a hundred percent about liberation. It's all, it's, and so she's, uh, she's very much a, um, a womanist theologian. She's very much, um, uh, man, I think she'd be right, right up your alley. She's brilliant too. Um, but, um, but that, but that's what gives me hope is that even though there are these examples of John and I can cite all day long, the examples of atrocities committed in the name of God. Um, there are examples of people even inside of those structures who are willing to go the distance right. and who are willing to stand up for human rights and who are willing to say, absolutely not, not in the name of God, not in my name anyway. So for you, when you, when you speak of abolitionism or being an abolitionist in a, in a modern con context, what does that mean for you? Police abolition, prison abolition. I mean, it, got you. So, so, so prison reform, uh, criminal justice reform, <laughs> all that, or, or not just not reform, but abolition. abolition just, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I live in, 
I live in Minneapolis where... So you're right, like right in the middle of right. all of that stuff. And it's big right now because we have a black police chief, or actually he just, he just uh, resigned, retired, whatever. And he was the first, I believe, the first black police chief in Minneapolis. And he was appointed, I think it's appointed, not long after Jamar Clark was killed and not long after Philando Castile was killed, which happened in St. Paul. Um, But there was so much talk of how hiring a black police chief was going to solve the problem. And we've seen this across the country that black men and women are propped up and said, oh, well, if we put them in the position of power, then they will reform the entire institution just by virtue of being a black person in power. And we have seen over and over and over again how that is not true. And that does not ju- like, that's not just for, for black people in institutions that are corrupt. It's, I mean, I'm watching it right now in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, where we have numerous women bishops, right? Our presiding bishop in the United States is a woman. And we have the first trans bishop in the Sierra Pacific Synod of the ELCA. And violence continues to be done against black, brown, and minority bodies. It has not been stopped. It hasn't even been, it's barely been interrupted, you know? And that's true, I think, of, uh, well, I observe and witness it being true of police in Minneapolis where we have this man who has come in and he has beautiful plans and ideas about how to reform the Minneapolis Police Department. And he had he went on, you know, like the reform tour saying, this is what we're doing. We're doing better trainings. We're making them happen more often. We are instituting body cameras for everything, la, 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 la. And we're transforming from the inside out. It's not reform, it's transformation. And still, you know, and we are, I'm partnering with the Minneapolis mayor to do all, like the mayor and the police chief were directly responsible for all of the new hires in the police department to make sure that we're only hiring the best of the best and not just power-hungry white guys who are ready to shoot a gun at anybody, right? We have these plans and these steps that we're taking, these action steps to ensure that transformation happens. And that is when George Floyd was killed. He was murdered over the course of more than nine minutes on film by a training officer and two new hires that this mayor and this police chief handpicked who did nothing despite that there has been an that there has been a um a policy on the Minneapolis Police Department book since 2016 that officers are to intervene on behalf of citizens when another officer is engaging in brutality 
Yeah, you can't just turn the other way and say, well, he's the training officer and I'm just a rookie. Right, no, there are policies in the books that say you have to do that. You have to intervene. This has been on the books since 2016. And George Floyd, who started a fucking global uprising for black lives, was killed on their clock. And this is why, like, all of the talk of reform and transformation of an institution is bullshit. Policing in the United States is rooted in and modeled after escaped slave patrols, and you cannot reform that. Right. The institution has to be completely dismantled and done away with, and other ways of being in community build up in that void. And that's the bigger thing. And I think that that's it. It's true for prison abolition as well. I mean, we can look at prison and go, well, some people need to be in prison. That's arguable. You listen to abolitionists like Angela Davis, who've been doing this work for decades. And you look at Miriam Kabe, who's been writing about this stuff for decades. And you go, no, putting people in cages is never the answer. It is never the answer. We have done nothing in policing or in prison culture to actually stop crime before it happens. And there are ways to stop and prevent crime before it happens. And it's by funding education and housing and healthcare and infrastructure and transportation and food access. When people have access to the things that make their lives thrive, crime is obsolete. And so prison and policing are obsolete. You don't need them when a community is thriving. But instead of investing in those infrastructure things that prevent crime, we just keep throwing wet paper at the wall and going reform, reform, reform. And it, it's bullshit. <laughs> right. And the, and the more and more we move to privatized prisons oh, that are all corporate modeled and profit driven, then that that's the thing that kills it for me is you can make all the arguments that you want people who are pro you know pro law enforcement pro prison pro whatever but the second you put the profit motive in that thing i mean i'm i'm done you know what i mean i, I just don't see there's no financial incentive for 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 what they claim to be happening inside of prisons to be true um and then throw on top of all of that the absolute disparity of how you know people are charged and how they're sentenced based on the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status and everything else. It's just the whole, I, I think you're right. I, I think about when you, I make the parallel between what you're talking about with prisons and policing, kind of like religion, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm not, just not sure it's redeemable at this point. It might just be best to tear the whole fucking thing down and start with something completely different, you know, rather than, because I've been working on this thing, you know, inside of my religious systems for, you know, for years myself. But I'm like, I don't know. I'm not making a dent in this massive institution that continues to marginalize and dehumanize and do what it does because it's also profit driven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm I'm getting more and more cynical, at least more and more jaded to the idea that anything can be done about it other than just to abandon it altogether and see if we can't imagine something different. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it, we got to get away from this idea when it comes to policing and the prison systems that. We we want to throw this like idea that well not all of, not all of the people that are police are racist right which is true I'm I'm not I'm not saying that's not true but 
the system itself is built on systemic racism. Mm -hmm. So I don't care if you're racist or not, you are working within a systemic racist system. You are only given so many tools within that system to work with. And what you see happens when you see something like the George Floyd, right? Where you literally have police officers standing by watching another police officer murdering somebody and they are standing there. And they are stopping other people from rendering aid. They are actively preventing aid. Yeah. And mind you, we now know what this was all about, right? This was about a $20, a counterfeit $20 bill, right? Which I work in the retail industry, okay? I have my whole life. I have never once ever called the police because of a counterfeit $20 bill, ever. That's not how that system works. And it came out in trial that the kid who, who called police had been told to do so by his superior and absolutely regrets that and will to the day he oh, dies. Yeah, because here's the thing. Oh, yeah, you know, of course. If you, want, if you want to look at this, of course, I'm sorry. And if you don't, if you want to agree with me or disagree, it's a, it was racist, racially motiv- motivated that they called the police at all. Um, and I'm telling you right now, from my experience, the police don't care about a $20 counterfeit bill. Matter of fact, within my community, they wouldn't even respond, would they? They right. would actually get mad <laughs> that I wasted their time. Right. You know what? There's, there's a, the Treasury Department, there's a whole process. Actually, you're not, you're not wrong. There is right. a process. Yes. I know this because I deal with it. There's a process that you deal with with counterfeit bills, and it is between you and the Treasury mm-hmm. Department. Yeah. Period. That is if you caught it before the transaction happened. If you caught it after the transaction, that's your bad. Yeah, you should have caught it. Give it to the bank. Let the bank and it's deal a with loss. It. You but, know, it's twenty bucks. Right, and it's a loss. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's and, never, and, and, it's never with, a police yeah. call, and it's absolutely never the cause for murdering somebody. No, of course not. But well, you know, unless, you're, unless you're black. What's black. interesting is I. So, like the last, I don't even know why I got on this kick, but like the last probably two weeks, I have been sucked into the rabbit hole of YouTube videos of police interactions. (laughs) And it is maddening. It is maddening. I'm yelling at my phone half the time because I'm watching it on my phone. I'm like, you know, so uh, groups like Audit the Audit, um, you know, the, the First Amendment auditors who literally just go to do things that they're perfectly legally, you know, allowed to do just to, you know, see if they can provoke a response. And um, most of the time they don't do anything to provoke a response except mm-hmm. be there. Mm-hmm. But it, it was shocking to me how often there were police officers of color who were all too willing to still step all over people's rights. And because it, it wasn't that it, it had nothing to do. It was there. It was, it was them inside of a mm-hmm. structure right. that was corrupt, that, 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 that placed police officers above the citizens that they, that they are supposed to serve. Well, and they, and they are within a brotherhood, right? Which they are told that you don't break ranks. Right. This is, I, I've watched this and I have to be really careful because my experience is not the black experience, right? And so I am... Right, exactly. I Absolutely. am observing. Amen, me too. And I, observe, I, am an, I am observing as a white woman who has benefited from and perpetuated violence against black bodies my entire life knowingly and not. So I'm aware of that. I'm also aware of the fact that the Minneapolis police police chief, Arredondo, is a black man who 
was part of a lawsuit against the Minneapolis police, an internal lawsuit that was settled. And he and a number of other black officers received settlements for racism that they experienced within the department. And yet he remained part of an institution that is violently, inextricably anti-black. And other officers, other of the black officers who received settlements left policing when that happened and still to this day defend the department. And that Mm. I see as like when we talk about black officers within policing still perpetuating anti-blackness while in uniform, right? I look at women in the church perpetuating misogyny yes, on our ma'am. platforms. Right. Yeah. Like you're not wrong. I'm disgusted and horrified by teachers like the transformed wife who have millions of followers and are telling women, other women, because we only speak to other women, we do not speak to men, right? We can't do that. We have no authority here. here, But to (laughs) other women, we are telling women, get on your knees, endure abuse, Um, do Mm. not leave your husband, serve your husband, serve your children, deny yourself, erase yourself for the sake of the church and for God. And that's all a lie. And it's all self-mutilating bullshit. But we we participate and we perpetuate because in doing that, what happens? That white woman gets a little bit more power within the bigger structure, right? Right. And so I see the, the white women in leadership in the ELCA ascending to platforms that have traditionally been held by white men. And instead of destroying the platform, they ascend to it and they say, well, because I'm here now, things are different, even though nothing changes. Yikes. And that's because we go, okay, if there's this mentality where if, if the oppressed person, if the marginalized person suddenly is in this position within the hierarchy, then the hierarchy will, will function more justly. And the problem is that the hierarchy is unjust. The hierarchy is inherently violent. And so you cannot ascend to any piece of that hierarchy and participate in any piece of that hierarchy without perpetuating its injustice. Right. You have to function outside of that hierarchy, which is why I go back to Angela Davis on matters of policing, on matters of prison, on matters of church. And she said this, I had to actually look it up. You have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. Right? <clears throat> and Miriam Kabe says it a different way, but... The same message being like, we keep thinking that if you just put me in this position, in this place, then I will transform the thing from the inside out when you are still trying to transform an irredeemable structure. 
And so I am of the mindset now, and it is a whole mind fuck because I am doing this within the structure of the ELCA and according to the rules of the ELCA hierarchy that says I have to do this, 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 and this in order to be officially ordained, which, hey, there are financial things that keep the people who need to be teaching and leading and ordained out of the church because they can't afford seminary and they aren't given full ride scholarships like I was. Right. Mm. So there are gates everywhere. There are walls everywhere that specifically keep poor people, black people, brown people, queer people, native people, all of the marginalized people out. And then say that once one gets in, Oh, look, everything is different because this one got in. No, that one's a token and the structure still exists. So how am I going to take what I am learning and just say fuck all to the idea that I will transform this structure and instead get to transforming the lives of myself and everyone in my orbit. I'm learning with the, this with my family. I mean, and this is where it comes, like the rubber really, like, I hate that term, the rubber meets the road, whatever. It's becoming a <laughs> profound reality in my life right now because I am bisexual, I am queer, and I have been cut off and excommunicated from my family of birth because I have a nibbling who is non-binary and queer. And my one of my sisters is furious with me for supporting that nibbling. And so mm. that sister disinvited me from Thanksgiving and the rest of the family went along with it and said, we'd rather just not have you than talk about hard things. And that just is what it is. That's fine. I mean, I'm in therapy for it, <laughs> but, so it's not fine, but that's not what I'm getting at here. What I'm getting at is the fact that like, it's taken this much to realize like I am, I have achieved more than anyone else in my family. I have accomplished more than anyone else in my family. I have done more things and I have ascended the ladder. I have climbed and ascended the ladder in ways no one else in my family has in order to gain a seat at a table and just be able to have the conversation. And even after all of this, I have been cut out of the table, cut out of the room, mm. all of it. And so what am I doing? It's useless. These yeah. people are not my people. This table is not my table. My people exist outside of these structures on the fringes and my work as a Christian who finds beauty and value and power in the story of Jesus and in the transformative, miraculous way of God, the resurrection way of God, as we know God through scripture, through the Christian and Hebrew Bible, all of that empowers me to get on the margins and push them further out. Because just pushing those margins out, expanding the universe of what is possible, takes gravity away from the center, right? Like that center that has so much gravity right now loses some of its pull the farther and farther we push things out. So that's where I'm like, that's my work. That's what I consider my work is to just push the boundaries farther and farther and farther and farther. <laughs> yeah. And every time I go farther out of the margin, there are more people outside of that margin that I thought was the end. It's never the end. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's never. You're right. 
Well, I just preached the whole sermon. I, I think it's it's sorry. <laughs> it's really important, I love and, it. you know, because you know, I'm not going to speak for Nat and, and to completely, but I will. <laughs> I'll speak yeah. for him for a little bit. Go ahead. I mean, speak for me. Are, I mean, Nat and I are, you know, and we've said this before on this podcast. We are middle aged white heterosexual mm-hmm. men. We are what this country has created as the norm, mm-hmm. right? Everything outside of us is different, is less acceptable. And so it's super easy for me in my, my little crystal cathedral of my life to point at marginalized people and say, but you're not trying hard enough, <laughs> right? There is no try hard enough. <laughs> right. But I mean, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, man. What bootstraps? But right, it'd be super easy to sit, sit back, <laughs> and just sit in that in that world, and just shut my mouth, and yeah. just move on through life, and not give a damn. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, every once in a while, we'll point out some 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 issues within the BIPOC community. But I, you know, I'm becoming more and more uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. saying. You know, and, and I think it's the right, it's the right trajectory of my, of, of where I'm going is to, it's not my place to say, well, look, black people in the police op, in the police, in this policing situation also do bad things. Right. Right. It's because they're in a systemically racist program mm-hmm. that doesn't allow them to speak out and say, Hey, this is wrong. Well, you because- know. What what gets me is the thin blue line thing. Oh, yeah. that, that oh, still gets me. Shit. It still gets me. You know the blue lives matter thing. You know, like like you could decide to not be a cop tomorrow. Right. Just yeah. just you know what? There's no there's no such thing as a blue life. I'm so sorry. You opted into a profession that is inherently dangerous, and you knew that going in. If you're not up to the task, then don't do it. Go do something else. You know. It's a profession that gives you a badge and a gun, and it's still less dangerous than being a pizza delivery person. So please stop it's still, crying. Yeah, it's, still, yeah. <laughs> it's still less dangerous well, and, than falling timber in the Pacific Northwest or catching crab in the Bering Sea. Me. All right, well, and we just we, we just me. had the anniversary yeah. of January sixth, mm-hmm. right? Where all these people are posting all whatever bullshit they want to to, to defend a group of people trying to take over mm-hmm. this country for racist reasons and here okay let's let's just let's just put it out there for you guys so anniversary of january 6th where police officers were mm-hmm. beat killed hurt killed where were you supported where was your where was your thin blue line on that fucking day yeah. you guys spit on the police officers you called them names you hurt them you murdered them and you say you are the defenders of the police. You've shown your hand that that's not true. It's not about police. It's not about a thin blue line. It's about it's about anti-blackness and it's about pro-whiteness and white supremacy. And that's where yeah. like Resma Menikin and Robin D'Angelo, though I have I have some issues with Robin D'Angelo just because she's a white woman who is profiting off of anti-racism work. Um, and that is yeah. problematic. But a number of, of anti-racism teachers just are constantly reminding us that like there are good and bad people within every institution. And you can probably guarantee that every single police officer that joined the force did so because they want to do good. 
uh, maybe not every single, most officers a lot. start sure. policing because they concede. actually want to do good in their community, but they end up, they're in an institution that is inherently and irredeemably corrupt. And that's why like good or bad, we're not talking about good. It doesn't matter if you and I are racist or if we say the N word or do racist things like it's not about good or bad people because all of us are good and bad. We all have in us the capacity to do profound justice and to do profound non-justice in ourselves. It's not about good or bad people. It's about the water we swim in. And we all swim in the waters of white supremacy. And in that water of white supremacy, there's also patriarchy and queer phobia and all of this, right? But that's the water we swim in. And so that's what we're up against. We're either swimming with it or we're swimming against the water, not against each other. And it's not about you being good or bad. It's not about me being good or bad. It's about the institutions and structures that uphold our society. Yeah. And then, you know, just to, just to throw fuel on that fire, um, the church comes along. Oh, the and church is an integral player in all of sides. It. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's inextricably tied to, mm-hmm. so I've, I've lost track of how many, you know, churches I've been a part of that were, you know, just so uber right wing, politically involved, mm-hmm. you know, very conservative, very pro-military, very pro every, pro all the things you think they would be pro. Um, to the point where one of the bigger arguments I had in one of the churches that I served was having armed police officers inside of our church, you know, because, because, you know, because, well, it's possible somebody might come in and, and, and try and do something. We need to be able to put them down. Um, and so I had, you know, a church that I was part of where one of our board members was a police officer who had the sanctuary with, you know, with several of his plainclothes officers with, and I'm like, I don't like this. This is anti-Christ. This is anti um, the message of the gospel. Um, our job is not to retaliate and return violence for violence. Um, but anyway, so that that's that just sort of adds complications to everything. Um, I miss the days when, and I don't think I was alive for these days, but I I, I miss the days that I hear about where the church saw its role as being revolutionary. You know, as, as, as someone who would, uh, who, who did try to hold, um, those in power responsible and hold them accountable and be a force for good. Um, I'm not sure when that ever, maybe again, not in my lifetime, but, um, there was a time when I think the church felt that that was its role was to be, you know, one that spoke truth to power. But it only, I think it only ever worked when the church was truly marginalized itself. Well, and when the church is not the power that needs to be spoken to. Right. You can't. <laughs> well, yeah, there's like, also that problem. So, you know, maybe the first couple of centuries of the church when, you know, you're still basically an occupied, you know, force and right. um, you're still very, very much a minority group of people who are being oppressed yourselves, you can speak truth to power. Well, and that's where you get into it is like in the third century when Constantine was like, hey, let's make us a Christian yeah. nation. It all fell to fucking shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it all... <laughs> It really did because suddenly (laughs) instead of being violently oppressed and violently persecuted, the church had, the church was not only like left alone, which would have been preferable, right? 
But now right, it right. had influence and power. And now they weren't just like violently cast to the outside. Now they were at the heart of the inside and we're like, oh, well, now we can shape things in a Christian way, which means, hey, let's let's participate in the pogroms against the Jews. Let's keep oppressing them because they're bad. Well, yeah, well, they killed Jesus. It's They had it coming. God, the anti-Semitism that is like just at the root of so much Christianity. <laughs> so much, yeah. I was we, We've talked about this a number of times at the, uh, you know, and I think it was Brian Zond who wrote about this in one of his books at the, there's a Holocaust museum and I want to say it's in Tel Aviv, but it might not be, but it's a, I, I've brought this up enough times, John, I should have looked it up by now. Um, <laughs> but, but they, they get their, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a chronology of events that leads up to the Holocaust. And I want to say that one of the first, the, like the very first exhibit is Martin Luther's against the Jews, you know? So he writes this virulently anti-Semitic, you know, piece of work that, that advocates for taking away the property of Jewish people. Actually, if you look at what, what, what Martin Luther advocated, um, it's hard to believe that the pogroms of the Nazis in the early 30s were not predicated on, on what he said. Because almost, almost to a T, they did those things. They were. They were predicated and modeled on those things along with the United States efforts against Japanese yep. and other immigrants right, right, the, in the early... Right. In the early I don't know, 1900s, late age. And I mean, modeled after enslavement and genocide of Native Americans. So, I mean, the Christian church, and it's important to say that it didn't start with Martin Luther. And I don't say that in his defense because the, the Lutheran church, all of it, has not dealt with that grave sin to our incredible detriment. He took stuff and ran with it. Anti-Semitism was central to Christianity as soon as Christianity came into any political power. And and even before that, but before that, we didn't have the structure of the state to enforce our anti-Semitism. Right. Once we had the power of the state, it really blew up. And it hasn't, we haven't repented. The church hasn't repented. No. we haven't made reparation for that. No, because there has to be some level of self-awareness for any of that LOL. to take place. We don't have the time for that. That's <laughs> and and it's, instead of you know acknowledging the anti-Semitism, is we've just created ourselves as the new Jerusalem. Right, supersessionism. Right? right. So we, right, we've, we've replaced that. Well, we can't be anti-Semite because we are the new Jerusalem. We are... We are the we are the chosen people. Yeah, which is yeah. itself anti-Semitic. <laughs> right, and you're and you're in, in, you're in seminary, so I can assume that you have, have have done your fair share of study on Second Temple Judaism, and you can see how how badly it's represented by most Christians or understood by most right, Christians. Right, right. I think the so much of the root of anti-Semitism in, in the evangelical church today is based in a very 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 poor understanding of Second Temple Judaism, like not even really understanding what's what's going on there. The Christian church as it is today, writ large, is completely ignorant to its own history. When I talk to, in this Facebook uh, confrontation I was in over the weekend, which was just so silly, um, it was with somebody who 
really is like, he's trained himself in apologetics, right? How to to throw chapter and verse as a weapon against whomever you're fighting, how to, how to do the debate, the, the logic debate thing. And I'm like, yeah, like, you have no understanding of where Jesus came from in mystical Judaism, where everything was a conversation and it wasn't about reason. It wasn't about logic. It was about like, let's talk about this. Let's debate about this and like throw out ideas and see what makes sense. And, and it's all deeply rooted in emotion and experience and mysticism and mystery and it's Greco-Roman idolatry yeah. of, of reason and logic that this apologetics thing is rooted in, which is not Christian. <laughs> like, right. It's the opposite of Christian. So it, I just think that's funny. But it's exemplary of just a lack of, I shouldn't say the lack, the total ignorance the Christian church has of its own history dating back to and back to Jesus and be, even before Jesus. We have no understanding of Judaism. No, no, we certainly don't. Any Judaism. We don't listen to Jews now who tell us how to understand the Old Testament scriptures. Right. We think that we know better than they do because we're better than everybody. Right, but yeah, why would we listen to the Jewish people talk about their mm-hmm. scriptures? Yeah. Wow. What? Exactly. Why would I ever? Yeah. It. That was one of those places for me that was, you know, going back to our whole deconstruction. We really haven't really talked deconstruction too much, which I find refreshing. By the way, that's amazing. <laughs> I love that we have much more to talk about than that. Um, but when one of those places of 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 disconnect for me was the fact that I woke up one day as a forty five year old, you know, evangelical Christian, realizing I don't know a damn thing about church history. I've never once been encouraged to read any of the church mothers or fathers. I've never once been encouraged to investigate faith beyond, you know, any earlier than the reformers, because God damn it, that's when church started. And, and so I went on a, I went on a, uh, you know, I, I went on a journey of discovery. I'm like, I'm going to find out what these people had to say, you know, um, uh, and, and I found some pretty amazing stuff, you know, that that seemed to undermine and come into direct conflict with the things that that I had been taught and was currently teaching. Right. Like standing on platforms saying bullshit out of my right. <laughs> like, oh man. So yeah, you're right. There is a there is a a severe lack of awareness and a lack of of, of education, and actually for that matter, not even that much of a desire. On, a, on the part of a lot of people, because, you know, again, it goes back to that self-awareness thing. You have to ask questions you might not want the answers to. And on that note, I just want to, I just want to suggest or put this out there because the, the books that made the most impact on me, like as Christian history goes, like this is the first foray that I, that I did into a real survey of Christian history of church history. And I was taught by a Coptic nun who was glorious. This woman is incredible. Um, the story of Christianity volumes one and two by Yusto Gonzalez is incredible. He does such a phenomenal job of making it, It's not, it's not just like timeline boring history. It's the story of how Christianity happened, beginning with the patristics and all the way up to now. 
but it's a, it's a phenomenal survey for anybody who wants to just dive in and read a couple books for a dip in the water. I think that's the way to go. Yeah. Mr. Gonzalez. <laughs> no, I agree. That, that's, you said Gustavo? No, Justo. Justo. Justo Gonzalez. J-U-S-T-O. Okay. Justo Gonzalez, The Story okay. of Christianity, Volumes 1 and 2. Just that's we always I always love reading recommendations, man. Those are always coming very handy. Yeah. Um, man, I have said this um on more times than I can count when we've had guests on, especially guests with whom I'm not super familiar. Uh-huh. Um, and it always ends up being so freaking good. Yeah. yeah. It does. I could talk to yeah. you for a long time. In fact, I just need to find a trip to <laughs> Minneapolis and we just need to come out and hang out and play music together or something. Please do. Um, but I really, really appreciate you coming on and, and just giving us Thank you. Um, so much to think about. And uh, we'll link to uh, to your Facebook and stuff in, in the show notes. People should come Wait. follow you and check you out and maybe argue with you on Facebook because apparently you like to do that. So that'd be fun. Um. <laughs> I'm just going to say, okay, I think you're wrong, but cool. But here's cool. Some, All right. Here's communion. Peace. <laughs> here's the bread and wine, which I'm there you not go. officially allowed to give you because I'm not ordained yet. But right, right. But at some point you'll be but official, I will. And, and then you can administer the sacraments. I do it great. anyway. That's I, right. Thanksgiving. Don't tell my bishop. Right. <laughs> on that note, with a secret from the bishop to hold against you, we'll say goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.